0: Week 27, victory and accusation. Well, continuing in our study of Acts, I cannot get to this page for some reason. Last week we saw how Paul, after preaching through Jerusalem in riotous crowds, and if we know anything about riotous crowds in America right now, <laughs> this is the time to talk about it. Paul was preaching in Jerusalem to a bunch of riotous crowds, and he's preaching before the Jerusalem Council, The Jewish council in Jerusalem. And he is now being held in the jails, from what we found out last week, in the courts of Herod. And last week's message was called, Where's the Fruit? It's the, it was this whole message about questioning sometimes... If I'm so devoted to God If I'm in this calling that God has me in Not necessarily the places where we messed up But if I'm in the place God has called me Sometimes we ask Where's the fruit? Because I've been following him I've been serving him I've been sacrificing him Where's the fruit? And we saw with Paul The fruit of him preaching to a riotous crowd in Jerusalem And the fruit of him preaching to a Jewish council Had nothing to do with the people getting saved It had nothing to do with the council coming to Jesus It had everything to do with all of that working together to put him into a place where a Roman commander yanked him out of the crowd and put him into a position that got him in front of the Roman governor, Felix. And it went back to this thing that God told him. He said, now that you've been faithful in Jerusalem, I'm going to take you to the authority in Rome. And we, we, we put that back to in Acts uh, chapter 1 where it talks about going to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to all the parts of the earth. Well, Paul was experiencing this. He had gone to Jerusalem and the only thing God told him was in Jerusalem, you're going to suffer and you're going to go to jail. Not exactly the thing you want to hear with a calling on your life. Uh, can you imagine going home at night and you get a dream and God said, I want you to you know, go here and what awaits you is jail and suffering? most of us are going to pray against that (laughs) but Paul, that's all he had well he goes to Jerusalem, now he goes to Governor Felix because of preaching to seemingly unfruitful situations, unfruitful crowds and the governor he's talking to is actually the governor of Judea and Samaria and now he's at the courts of Herod preaching to Roman governors and Roman uh, officials and now we hear this message from Paul and we are the fruit of his ministry and sometimes the fruit of your ministry goes way beyond even your lifespan on earth isn't it funny how we always want to see fruit now yet we claim we believe we have eternal life but we measure fruit by temporary dwelling in the flesh for 80 some odd years so that's all right so paul is at this place he's been faithful and now he comes before felix governor felix at the trial in the midst of accusations against him. So in Acts chapter 24, starting in verses 1 through 4, it says this. Well, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, the, lawyer, I just went southern, crazy, and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus, I wish the Bible would have some normal names sometimes. Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. Now, I want you to, to think about what lawyers do. They know how to present a case. And they will do whatever they can to make sure that they do one thing, win. And they're going to win at any cost. So rereading this again, I want you to think of Turtle is going to Governor Felix, and he's like, you know, Governor, you've provided such a long period of peace for us Jewish people. You, you've given so much foresight to give us reforms, and Your Excellency, we're grateful for You. But you know what? I I don't want to bore you, so please just give me your attention for a moment. Let me give you some context. The Jewish leadership brings this lawyer in to the case, to the court of Governor Felix, because they really want Paul convicted. They want Paul taken out. They're tired of him talking about the way, the truth, and the life. They're tired of him preaching about Jesus. They're tired of the riots that are happening, which are happening because of them. They're not happening because of Paul. They're tired of this, and the lawyers are good. And he's sitting here, and he starts off just, "Uh, Felix, your excellency, you provided peace for us, you've enacted reforms for us, we're grateful for you. The thing about Felix, to give you the context, Felix had a past life. You know, we always see people in position of where they're at, and we forget that people came from somewhere. And when people come from somewhere, it can either work to your good, or it can work for your bad. Well, Felix had a past that he didn't deal with properly. Felix began his life as a slave. And the way he rose to power as a governor was that his brother Paulus was a friend of Emperor Claudius. And because of that, Felix gained freedom as a child. So he grows up and then uses this past of I was a slave for political gain. And he was known, he had this great notoriety as the first former slave to become a Roman governor. So he's got this kind of thing working for him. But even though he gained the freedom from his slave slave days as a child, the slave mentality stayed with him. His past didn't stay in the past. It stayed with him. And because of this past, Felix didn't use his past and said, because of what I've gone through, I'm going to let it show how I can be compassionate and merciful. He took his past as a slave and said, I'm going to be cruel cruel and use the power that I now have as a governor to get back at the people who enslaved me. In other words, he was bitter about his former days. He was bitter about his former life. And because he was so bitter about something done wrong to him, he used this, it it gave him this lust for power that he abused. Bitterness can be quite problematic. Something's messing with me, and my eye I can't hardly see out my left eye. Last week I couldn't hear out my left ear, this week I can't see out my left eye. So you know it's good. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Bitterness can be problematic and we overlook it. Because a lot of times in our bitterness, we think that we can just be justified in it. We think, well, you don't know what I went through. And you can't speak into my situation because you have no idea what I've dealt with. You don't know what I've come from. You don't know the family life I had. You don't know how I was treated. You don't don't know. You don't know me. And especially these days in America, that is pretty much the issue that everyone's dealing with. We don't use what we've dealt with in the past for good. It becomes this bitter thing in us. And what what we say in the idea of, well, you don't know what happened to me, I think Christians need to start realizing what did happen to us when we claim this rebirth in Jesus. Because if we're reborn as a new creation in Christ, your past does not define you. What defines you is your true past of when God created you before you got on this earth and your identity was corrupted into the only past you've known while you were in the flesh. And what God wants to do is he says, I want to restore you to a former self that you never got to know. It's kind of like in Savannah when you go see these houses. Some people look at some of the houses on, say, 37th Street as old and torn down, and, oh, and they need to be torn down, they're ugly, but some people that have lived for like 100 years, like my mom, <laughs> she'll, <laughs> she'll look at a house and tell me how beautiful it used to be, because she saw it when it was in its, and, and what people do is when they see it, they'll say, I either want to tear it down because it's worthless, or I want to do what to it? Restore it because I see the beauty in it, and that's what God does for us. He says, when I look at you, I don't look at all the things that make you bitter. I don't look at all the things that try to define you. I see you how I created you, and I'm in the business of restoring what you never know, what you never knew, so that you can become the beautiful creation that I meant for you to be, and that is why he says, I'm going to make you right with me. I want to restore everything that's been lost. But what we do is we get so focused on this bitterness that we forget about this process of restoration. And the Bible talks about bitterness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 15, it says this. Work at, notice those first two words, work at. Don't feel bad that it takes you to work at this. It's not going to come easy. Work at living in peace with everyone. I don't know if y'all, if y'all agree, but that's hard. That's hard to, to, to live in peace with certain people that you work with, that you related to, <laughs> that you married to, <laughs> that you go to church with. <laughs> work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. He says, work at living in peace. Work at living a holy life. Because if you don't live a holy life, you're not going to be able to see him for who he is. So I want you to work at this because it's not just about you. It's about them too. Then look what follows. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. How many of you want to receive the grace of God? Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now, we're going to talk about this root of bitterness, but it's so easy to concentrate in this passage about the root of bitterness. And that's what we all do when we read this passage. That's what every preacher will do when we preach this. It's talking about the root of bitterness, the root of bitterness. But why does he bring up watch out for the root of bitterness? The focus of this text was the words right before. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Look after each other so that none of you fall short of this grace. Make sure that we don't fail to keep up with his grace. What is his grace? Move on past the pain. Leave the hurt behind. Bring on a new identity and don't let that define you. If you don't receive the grace to move on from the thing, In your past, if you can't move on from the thing that's defining you now, you are not fully receiving the grace that was given for you to be birthed out of that old thing. And if you can't receive that grace to move out of an old thing, it's limiting your view of how great he is. If you can't move out of an old thing and you still hold on to it, he says, you're failing to receive the full grace that was bought for you. Now, I can't see out of both eyes. This is the weirdest thing. Y'all, someone needs to intercede for me. Move on past the pain and past the hurt. If you don't receive that grace past pain and hurt, if you can't move past that, a root will grow in you called bitterness it will grow, and it's going to corrupt many around you, including yourself. And some people who are around you, they're going to identify you by a root of bitterness, not even knowing that bitterness is why you got so many issues. People say, well, you're a Christian, but you're the most hateful person I've ever met. And they identify you as hateful because you haven't received the grace to be born into loving because the root of bitterness makes you produce a fruit of hate. And what's going on in our lives in the church, and, and, and when I say the church, throw out the idea to organizations. I'm talking about the people of God. What's going on with the people of God is we claim a rebirth in identity. We claim a rebirth in Jesus where we're loving and we're passionate and we have mercy and we're forgiving. But none of us are forgiving We hold grudges against everyone that did one little thing wrong to us. And you're wondering why you can't move forward in life. You're wondering why you can't get breakthrough. You're wondering why you don't get favor. You're wondering why nothing ever happens. And God's like, you haven't received me fully because you haven't received my grace. And if you want to get even more real about it, our prayers have become prayers out of bitter roots. There was a day when all the church did was pray for lost souls. But now when we come to church, it's favor, jobs, increase, relationships. Why, why, why have we moved to pray me, 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 me? Because you're bitter about what you don't have here, 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 and here. So we come in prayer, I talked about this Wednesday, with Agendas. Instead of saying, God, here I come with no agenda, Holy Spirit, move my prayer. And what you don't realize, this is a little teaching from Wednesday, what you don't realize you're missing out on, the, 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 the scripture says, when two agree, you move heaven. So if you want, you can spend day and night praying for yourself, or you get with two or three and let the Holy Spirit move two or three to pray for the issue they may not know of based on the Holy Spirit's leading and the two or three just move heaven into your problem. That's called light into darkness, knowledge into ignorance. But it's all consumed in bitter roots. This didn't happen for me. You don't know what happened. Felix is here. He was a slave. He experienced a horrible childhood and now he's using it to get back at everything he can get back at. You see, the fact of the matter is bitterness is revealing that you haven't received grace fully, which indicates your view of of your father. You say he is good, but you can't move past your past. Felix could not move past from this bitter root of slavery and is corrupting many. And the fact of the matter is, we talked about how these lawyers, they're, they're coming up to Felix and they're talking about, oh, your excellency. You've done so much great for the Jewish people. You brought so many reforms it was all lies you know you want you want to know what Felix was really doing he didn't bring peace at all it was all flattery from the lawyer what Felix had was really doing he actually was famous for a massacre where he ordered the slaying of thousands of Jewish people in Caesarea all because he used the power as a source of revenge And they know he hates Jews, and they know that he's using this power to be a a hateful and cruel ruler. And they said, I'm going to come up before this guy, and we're going to flatter the mess out of him. And what we do, is this okay? We get bitter, so we take it upon ourselves to make sure that people get what's due them. And we take it on, we take it out on other people, especially when we get offended, just like Felix did on Jews. They did nothing to him, but he says, I'm a slave, I'm bitter about how I treat it, so I'm going to use my power to treat these people how I want, to make myself feel better. And we do it. This root of bitterness causes us to, to take things out on people. And all the church is known for as hypocrites. Bitter people, the most unloving people you could ever meet. And that's not the fruit of anything. And because of the root of bitterness, we get revengeful. And in Romans 12, 17 through 21, it says this Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. If people can't see honor in what you do, do it differently. Despite what your heart says. Well, I have good intentions. I don't really give a flip about what your intention is if I can't see honor in it. Okay. That's for me too. That's for all of us. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. 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 Even if you disagree with masks or no masks or if COVID's real or not or do whatever you got to do to live in peace, do it. Put your opinions to the side and your hyper, you know, knowledge of God that you have that no one else does. And just honor people and love people. Dear friends, never take revenge. Lead that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I'll take revenge and I will pay them back. And if you claim that God is all powerful, why wouldn't you leave that up to the all powerful? Because you don't really have that view of him. Says the Lord, verse 20, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you. Conquer evil by doing good. They will burn with conviction because you have responded with good to their evil actions. I saw a Facebook post this week that said Judas ate too. I love that. Jesus knew what Judas was about to do, and he didn't say, amen. I know what you're about to do and betray me. You don't get to eat at this table. he put the man right next to him. But when we find out there might be a snake in the grass, we try to remove the snake. You know what my Bible says? Feed the snake. Give the snake water. But isn't there a line? Because, I mean, if I know something's going to come against me, isn't there a balance? Well, yeah, there is. Would you like to know what the balance is? Because I don't know about you, but if I know there's a snake in the grass, I, I don't want to get bit. But I also don't want to repay evil. So what's the balance? Well, Felix is killing Jews. He's a horrible ruler. And here the lawyer is. He's puffing him up. You're great. You're wonderful. You're doing all this good for Jews. Knowing the man's just killing and massacring people. Well, doing good and flattery to gain advantage are two very different things. Doing good should never be to manipulate. Jesus was not manipulating Judas by allowing him to eat. And a lot of times what we'll do is when we know someone, when something's happening to us, that something's been done to us, we say, well, I'm going to take care of this bitter root and I'm going to do good to them. And you start using flattery to puff them up trying to manipulate the situation to your advantage. Look, is this okay? Jude talks about it. Because I think flattery is overlooked a lot when it comes to sin. I think flattery is overlooked because people will flatter the mess out of you to get what they want. And we become blind to it. You so good at that when you when you suck at it. (laughs) Just being real. You, you know what? You so smart when you know they dumb as rocks. We we use flattery to get what we want out of someone, and you know you experience this sometimes from your boss. But then sometimes you'll do it to your boss because you're trying to manipulate them with flattery to get a raise. See, y'all don't want to get that real. Well, Don't don't manipulate them with flattery to get a raise. Just simply feed them and give them water. Bless them. Do good to them with no agenda. Because you're trying to manipulate something out of your boss and God's like, if you'll just bless him, I've got something over here. That has nothing to do with that blessing. Jude, maybe one of the overlooked books in the Bible, talks about this flattery thing. In Jude, verses 3 through 4, it says this. Dear friends, I've been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share. Jude is the brother of James, by the way, for those of you that might not know that. But now I find that I must write about something else. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all to his holy people. Defend the faith. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. That sounds like the church of today. Let me tell you something sin doesn't change based off of political acceptance. The scripture does not change. It is true today as it was thousands of years ago. He says, the the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. They denied only our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Then further on down, he starts to talk about these people in verses 12 through 16. Look at this. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving rain. They're like trees in the that are doubly dead. They bear no fruit and they've been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea churning up the phone in their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, he prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord's coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they've done and for all the insults that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Look what he says. These people are grumblers? They're complainers. They're living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. He's prophesying about the people flattering Felix and he's prophesying about the people that are doing it in the church today. The grace message. You can live in a moral life Because God saved you from your sins. That is not what it says. Claiming Jesus does not save you. Whoa. Did did the pastor just say that? Yes, I did. You don't want to know why? Because I probably quote it at least twice a month now. The scripture says, many will say my name, but I will say, I never knew you. It is proclaiming him and living a life, striving for and working for perfection, trying to be holy. Will we get it wrong? Yeah. Look at David. We did a whole, like an 85-week series on David. David got it wrong every week of the series. But God said, I know his heart, and he's trying. But there are so many People in the church that have been doing this whole—I'm going to flatter the saints to make them feel like they're good to go, so they can fill up my seats and give me glory as a great preacher to make me feel better about what I'm doing—to put money in the tithe bucket to build this organization called church—and we're going to tell people we're doing all the stuff, and everyone in the congregation's dead. And you want to know why I can say that boldly? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And no one's looking to the church for answers. I remember a scripture. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no healing power in the church anymore? We say we've got the power. Where is it? And we're all saying amen and that's great. But like why aren't we coming together to pray into this thing? And I'm not trying to call you out for Wednesday, but if you get convicted about it, you know, that's okay too. But, (laughs) but like, what are we doing? I don't know about you, but, like, I'm sick of just talking about it. We've got to start doing some things. The church really does have to unify. Race really does have to unify. And you know how it's going to unify? Not by identifying race, but identifying that we are the culture of the kingdom. Right? <laughs> we, we, we've we got to get to a place where we start viewing each other as the heavenly creation we were before we got put on this earth. I mean, think... think we identify each other by the past and God says, well, I've redeemed that. Are you not buying it? Can you please receive my grace and move out of the bitter roots that's causing so much division in your culture and society and move heaven down through this earth? There's division over everything. You can't go into a store anymore and buy something without offending someone. everything is dividing and everyone's looking for something to unify we are Everyone's saying how bad it's getting but church we're in the greatest moment of all time we have the answer we have the keys why are we scared I I, I would even say why are we why are we even praying God come back I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not praying God come back. I'm like, you chill, you intercede, I'm going to do what you commissioned me to do. I'm going to go get the souls like you commissioned me to do. I'm going to take your name to the ends of the earth like you commissioned me to do. We have got to get involved. And when He says, I'm going to come back for a spotless bride. Spotless brides don't have bitter roots, people. I hope this is okay. If it's not, you can find another church. Um. (laughs) Oh, Lord. But seriously. Okay, so (laughs) we get so guilty of this. And I think with that flattery, it also comes to giving God insincere praise. Because we love to flatter God when it comes to praying for things. Like when you need something, you, that, you'll, you'll, you'll get in prayer quick when you need something. God, you're so great. You're so wonderful. Help me with this coworker. Help me with this bill. And then he's like, I hadn't, I hadn't spoken to you in about six months. And you think he's ignorant to your flattery? You, you think he's blind to your motive And when you finally started talking to him? Well, Kyle, are you saying that if I haven't talked to him in six months, I can't come talking to him? No, 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 I'm not saying that. But if you haven't talked to him in six months and you need something, start out with just praise. With no expectation for anything because you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. When are we going to get it in our minds that we don't deserve anything else? When are we going to come to him with no agenda and just say, God, you are amazing. And if we we read the scripture and, and see that the Holy Spirit prays with groanings we don't understand, and Jesus intercedes for us day and night on our behalf, maybe God knows our hearts well enough to say, if you would just come to me without motive, not only will I change your heart's desires and give you those desires, but I'll hear the prayers that you don't even have the strength to muster up. This is this okay? Talking about insincere prayers, look at Psalm 78, <coughs> verses 34 through 37. When God began killing them, that's a tough one to start out with. <laughs> if you ever want to have that conversation, just pull up Psalm 78. When God became, began killing them, they finally, they finally saw them. Of course they did. They repented and took God seriously. (laughs) I bet they did. (laughs) And then they remembered that God was their rock. I bet they did remember God was their rock. Can you imagine that? All right, God, you are my rock because you're killing my friends. (laughs) That God Most High was their redeemer, but all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongue. Their heart was not loyal to him. They did not keep his covenant. And I didn't put up there, but you know, the the next scripture says, but God still spared some of them. Even before Jesus, God still had grace for them because he never wanted to do it. He's always loved us. He doesn't need flattery, though. He needs sincere hearts devoted to him, giving him praise with no expectation of anything. And you, want, you mean to tell you the cure for, 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 for a lot of things in the church? If we would stop expecting him to answer prayers, we wouldn't get bitter at him when they don't get answered. Because what happens in the church is we pray for one thing for 20 years, 20 months, 20 days. And when there's not a breakthrough, it's when is God going to give me a breakthrough? When is God going to come through? He already did come through. How dare you ask anything more of him? But he's so good that he says, because I already came through, boldly approach my throne with no agenda. See, that's how great God is. He doesn't owe you anything, but he says, here's the invitation. Come ask me. But, but don't come with an expectation. Expectation other than that God will do it, but don't define how he does it. Maybe God does it through a no, maybe God does it through a yes, maybe God does it through what Paul's about to go through in the middle of chains. See, when we always talk about freedom in the church, we always when we say we shout victory, we always think victory is out of chains. But Paul is most free in this passage, bound up. And we always think that freedom in Christ means we won't have any bounds on us. But what if freedom is you have such a peace in your mind because of the victory in Jesus that when chains get on you on this earth, you know that you'll outlast the chains. And that your focus on him releases you of what the chains are trying to do to you. Well, I'm in the bondage of debt, well, be released of that bondage while you're in the bondage. I'm in the bondage of accusation. You don't know what they say about me. But I know what God says about you. He says you're righteous. He says you're redeemed. Be released of the accusation. Look what happens. The the Jews are manipulating this leader. He's being corrupted by bitterness. They're giving him flattery. And in the next verse, I'm only in verses 1 through 4, by the way. So I hope y'all give me a little time. We got 20 verses is this all right? Is this okay? Okay, if it's not, I'm still going. Verse 5. Well, we found this man to be a troublemaker who's, con- who's constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when, he, when we arrested him. But the commander, Lysias came by with great violence, took him out of our hands. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. And then the other Jews chimed in declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. You see, Judea at the time was filled with all these revolutionaries that were against Rome. And Tertullus was trying to simply put Paul in this category. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a revolutionary. He's a Nazarene, and Nazarenes were known as these poor, pitiful people, and they're, they, feel, they were doing to the Felix. They knew what Felix was doing. Well, Felix was a slave, and he's bitter about it, so he's using that for his advantage. So we're going to do the same thing to Paul. Hey, Felix, Paul, he's a Nazarene. He's poor. He's pitiful. He's trying to get power by coming here and riding in our temple. You see what, you see what they're doing? They're trying to trying to win Felix over, manipulate Felix. And it's funny because Turtle is just flattering to manipulate with all these accusations, but you know what? He doesn't have any evidence. All he says is, ask Paul, hoping that Paul incriminates himself. He's got no evidence of any of the accusations are true. Let me say that again. All these accusations. No evidence of truth. The Bible talks about the accuser. It's in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony." They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. It says he accuses us day and night. And he uses flat, He even used flattery to manipulate Eve into questioning the father. You can eat that and you won't die. You, you're powerful enough. He, do you see what Satan was doing? He was, he, he was throwing out accusations. You won't die, Eve. It was a form of truth in, a, in mass and manipulation. He knew she would die in her soul, but wouldn't die in her flesh. He didn't all the way lie. And, 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 but isn't that what we do? Well, it was, it was a half-truth. That's what Satan does. He, he throws out these accusations. And it's funny because in Revelation, we always think it's talking about just the end. But in this passage, it says he was thrown down to the earth with his angels. And if, if I'm reading this correctly, Jesus already like gave his blood for us, and he already has victory. So what if this passage is the revelation of the victory that we already have in the face of the accusation? Because if we have overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb... And the word of our testimony. What if the word of our testimony is not just that we were saved? But what if it's when we get accused, we give the word of our testimony to the accuser? Let me say it like this. When there's an accusation, this is how Satan works. He accuses you with, you're not good enough for God. And then he flatters you with, but you can do this alone. You don't need church. That's what comes into our mind. He accuses you that you're not good enough, you're too far gone, you're too far removed, you've sinned too much, you've fallen too much, you keep making the same mistakes, and then he flatters you with, but you can find your own way. You don't need them. You don't need a pastor. You don't, you don't need prophets. You don't need, you don't need anything. You can do this all by yourself. And that's what he does. He flatters you. He accuses you. He manipulates you. And what we do is we walk out of victory into defeat when the word of our testimony should be, I am not going to allow you to accuse me of a victory that I already have. You tell me that I'm not good enough for God, but my God says that I am good enough because of what he did for me. By the blood of the Lamb, and here is my testimony, I'm good enough and I do need people. See, victory in accusation, you've got to testify against the accuser. Look what happens in verse 10. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years. I'll gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple. He says, those accusers, this is my testimony, they ain't got nothing. They didn't see me stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove these things they accuse me of. Paul says, yeah, I'll tell you exactly what it is. They ain't got no evidence of nothing. I know you. I know what you're about, Felix. I know the truth. I ain't going to puff you up. I ain't going to call you Your Excellency. I'll tell you exactly what I did. I didn't do a thing, and I'm not going to let them accuse me of what I didn't do. That's exactly how we need to address the accuser. I know you, Satan. I know what, when you get a thought in your mind, take every thought captive. I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to say. I'm not buying it. What is the accusation? There's evidence that you're not good enough. Look what you did yesterday. I know what I did. But I'm not going to let that evidence define a thing. Because my evidence is in the blood of the lamb. My evidence is in the word of the testimony that I put my identity in him, not a mistake. I put my identity in him, not something that I am having a heart to get out of. I'm not talking to anyone. My identity is not in the bitter root. My identity is not in my past. I am reborn, and you ain't going to accuse me of a thing. And then in verse 14, look what he does. But I do admit, this is where it gets good. I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors. I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets, I have the same hope in God that these men have, and he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me, no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. He says, you know what? All the things that you say you have witness of, they ain't no witness. The no only witness I got is the Holy Spirit in me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted, I'm on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He said, I am guilty for that one. I do believe in the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. He, Paul stands on his truth of his belief right in the face of accusation. He says, I did this, I did that, I believe in him. As far as these accusers go, bring the evidence because there is none. And we put too much stock into false accusations and not not enough into faith in the truth that we are right standing with the Father. Because whether evidence is true or false, it's hard to look past it when you're facing accusation. Because when you're facing accusation, all you see is this false evidence, Right? But let me tell you what the, what the Bible says in Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2. Faith shows the reality of what's hoped for, and it's the evidence of what you cannot see. So why do you put stock in a false accusation that you can see and not stock, stock in a faith with evidence that you can't? Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. The enemy will manipulate He'll try to get you to allow a bitter root to take hold. He will try to make you look at evidence in a, in a truth other than the one truth that you need to have faith in. And it's faith in one that you cannot see all the time. You want to know the evidence that you cannot see all the time? It's right here in Romans 10. Look at it. Dear brothers and sisters, belonging in my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal for they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by keeping their law. But here is the promise. Here is the truth. Christ already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right. He says, have faith. That no matter what, even when you don't see the evidence that you're right with him, have faith that you are. Not because of what you do in your law or in your religion, but by what he did with his blood. Because their zeal is not response to what he did. Their zeal is let's do everything right to earn something that Christ couldn't do it enough by himself. What does our zeal need to be? Because of what you've done and made us right, we're going to strive for perfection—not to get salvation, but we respond to it. The evidence of that right standing is right in front of you. It's with faith. Don't be ashamed. When the enemy accuses you to point to, to, to point to an evidence that is false. That's God calling right now. We need to always focus on the evidence that can't be seen. What can't be seen. That when God looks at you, he says, I love you and you're righteous. You can't see that. I know there are some days when I look in the mirror and I do, I do not see Righteousness. So do I have faith in what I see or what I can't see? The last few verses, look at verse 22. This is where it gets really cool. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, Wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody but to give him some freedom. Keep him in custody but give him some freedom. And allow his friends to visit him. Take care of his knees. You see, Felix is known for abusing the power but he's walking the middle line because he doesn't want to make a decision because he says, I know about you Christians. I know their faith. I know what they do. This man, Paul, ain't guilty of a thing. But because he's all about political gain, he says, I'm not going to do anything to upset the Jewish people, and I'm certainly not going to be put in this category of being with the way. So you stay in bondage, but I'll give you some freedom. In the face of accusation, manipulation, flattery, and bitterness, faith, the faith of Paul, brought freedom in the middle of captivity. And there are so many times we focus on get me out, get me out, get me out, but maybe sometimes you need to realize that it's freedom while you're in it. Because for Paul, that's exactly where God wanted him. For the next two years. And you think God let you down because you're still held captive? You're looking at evidence that you can see. Your faith should be in what you cannot see. You you have faith for a breakthrough that you can't see while you're in it. You you have faith for a restoration when nothing's being restored. Verse 24. A few days later, don't worry, there's only 27 verses. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Hmm, Interesting, huh? Sending for Paul, he listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so that he, so he sent for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Look what happens here. For two years, in the false evidence of captivity, he had the freedom to witness to a Roman governor and his wife about self-control, righteousness, and Judgment Day. Two years. And it caused Felix to be afraid. He knew that what Paul said was true. So he hid in his power. He hid... In making decisions to gain, he didn't want to make decisions because he wanted to gain favor with people. And he was afraid because he knew he was rejecting truth to please man. He knew he could never convict Paul. So what he did was he was delaying it for someone else to convict him so his hands would be clean. And the funny thing is, Drusilla, his wife, Drusilla was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. She was only about 20 at this point in time. And they said that Drusilla was very beautiful. And the way that Felix got Drusilla was he seduced her from her husband and made Drusilla his third wife. So he seduced this woman away from her current marriage, making him his third wife because he had a lust for beauty. He had already had an issue with lust for power because of his bitter root. Look, look what his bitter root did in corrupting the marriages it's t- a lot of corruption, which explains why Paul focused on three things. Let me talk to you all about self-control. And then he said, but let me also talk to you about righteousness. And he said, let me talk to you about judgment because you need to get this right now. And he rejected the truth, and he delayed making a decision for the next guy that would take his position And this is where we need to understand something and this is where I'm going to close with. Sometimes we don't like to outright reject something. Sometimes we don't like to make a decision. So what do we do? We delay. And then we get a false accusation from the enemy saying, you got all the time in the world. You young. Or, well, you lived a long life, there ain't no point now. Or, you, 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 you've got plenty of time to live it up and make decisions. Re- delay is rejection. You, do, do you think Felix got a get-out-of-jail-free car from Jesus simply because he delayed? No, it was rejection. And there are so many times God tries to speak to us and not, sometimes we don't make a decision, but sometimes we just delay in the need to make a decision. And we're at a critical point in 2020. And I, I, I just believe strongly that God has impressed this whole message on me to say really one thing within the victory of accusation. We got to start making decisions that we're either going to be for him or against him. You're either going to be all in or you're not. We're either going to strive to him together, pull each other out of the grip of false accusations, pull each other out of the grip of lifestyle, and walk into the, the, the image that he sees us as together, or we're going to fall into that category of people who just would not receive the grace. You can call it rejection, you can call it I'm praying about a decision, but your delay could be your issue. Felix knew the truth, but all he could do was delay, 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 because he did not want to make a decision. You are rejecting him with your delay. And Felix leaving Paul bound was the same thing that Pilate did with Jesus. I'm not going to convict you, but I'm not going to release you. And there are so many things we could be released from if we would just make a decision and stop blaming it on a delayed response. Joshua 1, 1 9, the scripture I'm closing with says this, this is my command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God is with you wherever you are. Go. In everything you do, everywhere you walk, he is with you. With every accusation you face, he is with you. His righteousness is on you. It's not something you have to earn. it, it You don't have to go home tonight to fix something to respond. You don't have to go fix a bad relationship tonight to respond. You don't have to go fix a bitter root to respond. That's a delay. Sometimes we just need to say, God, I am all in, and then respond in a new identity of being all in. Because what the enemy will do is he'll start those false accusations no, no 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 you heard that message but that wasn't for you you've got time false accusation that you, you you are not guaranteed tomorrow i'm gonna be completely honest with you i don't know where this altar call is going to go i don't even know what to say but i feel like something in this message has spoken to someone and you need to come up here and get before God and say, God, I'm all in. I don't know if, if it's manipulation or flattery. I don't know if you've been delayed. I don't, I don't know what I, I don't I don't know if you've been accused and you just want to freedom from that. I don't know what it is. But just for a few moments as Jacob plays, I want to open up this altar and I'm going to allow you the chance to just respond right now without delay to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm not playing the game anymore. Here's my life. As we just, if we could just all stand so that we could stand in agreement and pray over whoever comes up here. If that's you, could you just get here and kneel before God? And we're, I'm gonna, I, we're just gonna pray for you. It may be one, it, I, I don't I don't know who it is. Amen, there's one, there's two. Yeah. Let's get before God and we're gonna, we're gonna pray with you.